Welcome to the next in our online series of talks from St Paul's Cathedral. My name is Paula Gooder and I'm the Canon Chancellor here at St Paul's, which means that I look after the theology and learning within the life of the cathedral. Today's conversation is with the Reverend Lucy Winkett, who's the rector of St James's Piccadilly and a very well-known speaker and writer. Lucy and I had a wonderful conversation about Christmas and what Christmas means to us, but especially what Christmas means to us in difficult times, when life around us is full of challenges and hardships. We reflected on the meaning of God with us. We thought about what the incarnation, Jesus being born as word made flesh, actually means. And we also had to think about Mary and her inspiration to us today. We hugely enjoyed our conversation together and hope that you enjoy it as much as we did. Lucy, it's great to have you with us today, um, ruminating on Christmas. So why don't we start by reflecting on, do you like Christmas? Do you know, that's a really good question to ask a vicar because, <laughs> because um, you know, obviously we're working at Christmas and, uh, and lots, of, lots of clergy, in my experience, prefer Advent to Christmas. And by the time we get to Christmas, sometimes we're a little bit grumpy. But I'm one of those I'm one of those clergy who really love it. Honestly, I really do enjoy it. And it's partly because I think partly because it's in the context of Advent, which is so stark and strong and all about the end times. I know we're not talking about Advent in this in this conversation, but it's so it's such a powerful season. And then there's this explosion of, of just joy um, and relief, I suppose, at the end of it. Um, so I do actually, I really enjoy, even if I've sung, you know, Heart the Herald Angels Sing for 45 times, um, maybe, maybe it's my time in a cathedral that uh, raised my tolerance level for singing the same thing over and over again. <laughs> but I do, I really love it. How about you? Yeah, no, I do as well, actually. I'm definitely in the, I really love Christmas camp. And um, interestingly, I love it even more now I'm at a cathedral. And I'm with you about the um, there's something about the build up of carol concerts um, that goes all the way through December till you get to the moment um, on Christmas Eve where we have the, the kind of the, the Christmas Eve carol concert. And um, I never, ever get over the, that little shiver when you have John one read out the prologue. Um, and for me, that's kind of when Christmas really kind of lands for me every year without mm. fail. And it's something to do with, I think, because Christmas is a way that people mark time, right? And they kind of say, oh, that's the last Christmas that we were in this house, or this is the first Christmas with this new child, or whatever it is. And we mark our lives by Christmases often. And I think time, just picking up on your reference to the John 1 prologue, the, the bending of time in Advent and the kind of breaking into time from eternity into Christmas is, is a thing that I really always think about um, as it comes around, as that kind of the cycle, the cycle comes around again. And so that for that reason, I'm never I'm not terribly worried about breaking into Advent with Christmas as well. I know, again, some want to keep it very pure, but certainly we, we will do Advent really strongly and properly. But we also from time to time then pretend, as you were, it pretend mm -hmm. it's Christmas. So we but then we can go back into we can go back into Advent again. And I, I don't know, I find there's something real about that and that the, the kind of um, reflection about time passing and and the the nearness of eternity and time at Christmas is something something extraordinary I think 
No, I agree. And this 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 is really interesting, isn't it? Because in Advent and Christmas, you have a very clear linear time, but you also have that theological time where everything collapses in. This time of year, I always um, I love that um, Doctor Who quote from when David Tennant was Doctor Who, and he talks about time as a ball of wibbly wobbly, timey wimey stuff, which <laughs> I <laughs> gets yes. me every time because what he's, what he means in that is that that's when the past collapses into the future in the present moment, and you're never quite sure whether it's past or future. It's uh, it's it's a ball of wibbly wobbly, timey wimey mm. stuff. Mm. And there's that wonderful gosh I'm not I'm not very good at physics but there's that fantastic quantum physics quote isn't there that something like um time is what stops everything happening at once and I think there's a really kind of interesting theological point underneath that which is that time is God's gift to us because we can't we couldn't handle everything happening at once but actually the birth of Christ at Christmas is everything happening at once and so the chronos time leading up to it prepares us for that kairos moment where Christ is all in all and pre-existent and forever and, you know, till the end of the age. So there's some kind of merciful gift from God of time that enables us to handle the reality of what it means for God to be born. Yeah, absolutely. It's probably worth you just explaining the difference between Kronos and Kairos for people who've not heard the phrases before, because they are really important in our understanding of time, aren't they? Um, I, I'm sure you can do this better than me, Paula, but I'll have a go. Notice how I did that. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I saw what you did there. Um, I mean, chronos, chronological time, obviously, you know, watching. I suppose one of the ways to describe this might be um, uh, chronos time is is time passing uh, as far as, a, as, as, far as uh, living through, for example, the hands of a clock. And you could say that living our lives according to chronos time or indeed according to the kind of pace of modern life, if you want to put it like that, is like watching the second hand on a clock in order to try to tell the time. It kind of goes around. It is accurate. Um, it is kind of now, but you're never going to really be able to know the time and the meaning of time. Kairos time is God's time, eternity. And so that could the analogy could be that uh, instead of looking at the second hand around the clock to tell the time, you could look at the hour hand, which is no yet, no less contemporary. It's no less accurate. It's no less now, but it's it's imperceptibly uh, moving, and it's, it enables you to have a deeper perspective and a longer vision. Kairos time is eternal time, and the hour hand is still moving. But I think perhaps that that um, difference on the same clock face could help us understand the difference between chronos time and kairos time human time and god's time beautifully done couldn't have done it better myself <laughs> <laughs> um, and i was just thinking when you were talking about time and christmas marking the passing of time the impact that covid had on us because we i like you i kind of mark the years by what happened at christmas and then we had a couple of years when nothing really happened at Christmas. And I think for a lot of us, that was a really hard thing to deal with, wasn't it? Because the passage of time went in a different way and it, and it felt as though time kind of, I can't quite put it into words, but, mm. but Christmas wasn't marked in the same kind of way. Mm. 
And I think certainly for, I mean, I'm, I'm currently at, um, in the centre of London uh, at St. James's Piccadilly. So normally Christmas is, is incredibly hectic and, you know, people are out, the, the streets are crowded and it's a very busy, it's a very busy season. Um, but yes, of course, singing, singing became dangerous. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the classic instruments of Christmas, trumpets, brass, they were the most dangerous instruments to play um, because of the uh, danger of transmission of the of the virus so I will never forget I don't think um, the COVID the COVID Christmas if you can call it that where we did I think we were able there was some some living some lifting of some restriction or other that enabled people very separately to sing outside Um, so we had a we had a trumpet kind of facing away into the garden and we had people very spread out in the courtyard singing you know singing a, a carol or two um and they couldn't really sing they were because they were so emotional because we hadn't been able to sing for such a long time there was there was a real kind of knife edge uh atmosphere about the thing and and we, we we're very fortunate to have this outside space in the center of london but in fact we we eventually then had to stop because crowds were starting to gather at the at the gates and that was also too dangerous and that would have had to be dispersed so in the end we had to we stopped but just for a brief moment we remembered what we were remembered what we were celebrating we're able to just you know have a have a moment um but i think it was that you know i think a contemporary celebration of christmas is where people try to connect uh even if they haven't connected during the year they might connect with some kind of digital card or other um, but to be not to be able to connect was particularly particularly painful. I don't know how how did you find it? It yes, it was be it was painful and bewildering because all the things that mark Christmas in an external way, like family coming to stay, um, people around the table going to church and singing the carols, um, all the things that are especially Christmas and the way we, in which we mark it actually all disappeared. They all fell away. So it was a really strange kind of time, I think, because we both we were able, of course, we were able to celebrate Christmas. And the Christian in me wants to rise and say nothing changed. We still celebrated the birth birth of God made flesh. Um, But all the external trappings that signal to you that that's what was going on all disappeared. And I think for me, that was one of the things that I really struggled with. And you've—I know you've written elsewhere that Christmas, celebrating Christmas, is an act of rebellion. I don't know whether that mm. is in a COVID context or not. But what do you mean by that? Well, the thing about the world in which we live, and and in a way, these, these past years have kind of taken us back to a first-century context. It, in the first century, the world was bleak and awful. People looked around and um, everything that they hoped for, their hopes and their dreams were all falling apart. So it was very much a light that came to shine in the darkness. And one of the things for me about Christmas is recognising the extent of the darkness so that when the light comes, you can say, here is the light truly shining in the darkness. And so for me, there's something around Christmas about rebelliously saying, I know what the world looks like. I know how bleak and terrible and dreary it looks. But actually, I believe in God made flesh, the light shining in the darkness. And that belief in the light shining in the darkness is a rebellion against the darkness. 
and actually, I mean, this this year, are we obviously the virus is is kind of fading in some ways, but um, and there's there's plenty of other plenty of other challenges. But um, this year is going to be really bleak for really a lot a large number of people with the um, with you know the cold and the cost of living crisis. Um, so do you do you think it's do you still think it's an act of rebellion to celebrate it? Because it could also be seen as a bit uh, naive or or actually disinterested in the suffering of mm. people. How do you read it? Um, it all depends on what you mean by celebrating Christmas, doesn't it? Um, I think the first thing I want to say in response to your question is I'm a big believer in holy naivety. Um, that there is something about you. It's not about not recognizing how things are, but actually recognizing deeply and truly how things are, and yet believing in a God who transforms that anyway. Um, so there's something about that deliberate decision um, to celebrate in the face of darkness. But I think there's another strand which is equally difficult and which we, I, I'm acutely aware of this year is that the external markers of Christmas um, are often dependent on having money, as you say, having enough money to cook your turkey, having enough money to buy your turkey, having enough money to have more than the usual people around for dinner. Um, those are that's where it begins to feel a little bit complicated. And so I think there's a, something about kind of untangling, isn't there, about recognising that what we're doing is rebelling against the darkness, but at the same time not being blithe or unheeding about the people who are genuinely suffering in the world around us. We had an incident really uh, this, this winter, just at the church where I am now, which, um, which I haven't been able to get out of my mind, which was that one of the guests at the meal that we hold regularly for people who are homeless brought a donation for the food bank that we were wow. uh, collecting for. Mm. And I don't want to, you know, um, over, over romanticise that. I, I would like to live in a world where people are neither homeless nor need food banks. So that whole exchange is scandalous at root. At the same time, this particular person had doesn't have a home, but had the imagination to think what it might be like to have to heat a home in this situation. And so brought uh, a tin of soup from a supermarket and gave it to the collection we were doing for the food bank. Mm. There's something, again, just repeating the scandalous nature of that exchange at its heart. There's something in that for me, which is about Christmas, that there's a depth of generosity of spirit that I think is implanted in human beings that gets called out at Christmas if we can be uncynical about it to your point about holy naivety I love that that there's there's a kind of depth of generosity that can be called out of us by the gift of God's gift of Christ that can enable us even in those circumstances to to give what we have not dependent on the commercialism with which we're all surrounded and at your church, you do do a service of Blue Christmas, don't you? Which also kind of draws on another strand. Yes, that's that they're they're quite common in in different churches. Um, uh, and uh, we certainly we started ours some years ago. Um, and I have to say, to start with, I pro I was wondering. I, I thought, what is this going to be like? Blue Christmas for people who find celebrating diff difficult this year. 
I was I, I didn't really know what was going to happen. So um, and 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 again to your point about you know Christmas being not necessarily about enforced jollity or happiness. I was you know resi would resist that, but about joy, about a kind of deep joy. How do you then celebrate Christmas in this in this kind of context? It's the most beautiful service. It really is. It's it's a very it's a very delicate, delicately held liturgy. We sing carols, of course, um, you know, and, and the and the for example, in the bleak midwinter um, is is one that's often sung at that or um, or that be those beautiful two lines from it came upon the midnight clear. Man at war with man, hears not the love song which they bring. Oh, hush the noise, ye men of strife, and hear the angels sing. I said it in its um in its traditional version, not its inclusive version. But the so that so those kinds of carols have always that often that note of sadness and uh, and suffering in them. Um, but it is absolutely that it's for people who just, you know, who if they came and there were lots of descants and oh, come all ye faithful and crowds of people singing would feel alienated from that kind of collective. You know, it, it feels like there's a huge party going on and you're not invited. And it's a, a desperate feeling. So this service is very clearly for people, of course, who maybe have been recently bereaved or who are who are ill. Um, who find crowds difficult, who for whom Christmas brings back unbearable memories. Um, and what I also like about it is that, I mean, there's no great interrogation as to why you're there. Um, you know, it's why, why are you sad? Why have you come to this particular Blue Christmas service? I, I, what I like about it is that people feel able to come and simply be, and there doesn't need to be a big reason. You could just be feeling, well, I just, you know, Maybe I'll go to the big carol service in two weeks' time, but right now I just want to sit quietly and understand the kind of small miracle of a child being born in a dirty outhouse with night workers and a you know a family soon to be refugees. That there's a lot about the Christmas story that will speak to that heartache that so many people will be feeling, not just this year but every year. And. In that, for me, the phrase that just resonates time and time again is that God is with us. The that 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 and that. I mean, I love the the Hebrew and and the way in which it kind of the Hebrew kind of speaks it. The Immanuel, Emmanuel, um, with us, God. Um, there is, I think, just something um, so comforting when when times are hard, simply to hear that over and over again. No matter how times are and no matter how difficult things are, God is with us. And I think it's, it also links Christmas to Good Friday, right? I mean, I think it's Absolutely. important, you know, in, in so much art of Christmas, the shadow of the cross falls across the cradle. And we can't but remember that this child grows up to die. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's probably one of the most difficult spiritual I don't may, do I want to say task? It's one of the most difficult spiritual uh, parts of our vocation as Christians that the place where God meets us is at that place of our greatest shame and greatest alienation and deepest anxiety. And, you know, outside the city walls, essentially, is where God meets us in, in Jesus, in the cross. And that's no less true at Christmas, at Christmas too. But it's really hard to remember if you're having a tough time that God is God is with us. And maybe I think, you know, to your point, I think Christmas 
that is repeated over and over and over and over again, Emmanuel, God is with us, that maybe there is something that perhaps it can go in, um, as long as you don't feel that there's a kind of big societal, you know, happening that's that's going on that you simply can't be part of. Yeah, yeah and, um, and, you know, for years, the phrase, the theology, the theology of the incarnation terrified me because people who were the kind of profound theologians would say it and they would nod sagely and go, mm, yes, the theology of the incarnation. And I'd always feel I didn't understand it. Um, there was so something what, they were talking about. It? What is it? <laughs> well, <laughs> you tell it's us. Just, it's just what you've just said. I mean, that, that for me is what, what you did is for me described exactly what the theology of the incarnation is. God is with us through it all, through thick and thin. And when it doesn't feel like that, God is still with us. And that idea of God becoming human, taking human form, and therefore deeply and thoroughly understanding what it's like to be us. And after many years, I've said, that's what it means. And, and if I may ask, what do, you, what do you think? You know, there's that phrase that theologians use about the scandal of particularity about the incarnation. Does it matter that Jesus is born into those actually really challenging circumstances, you know, not, not, as, a, not as a prince and all the things you might expect mm -hmm. Jesus to be born as, but, but as I said, you know, in a kind of very precarious birthing situation mm -hmm. with, you know, kind of strange people turning up at all hours of the day and the night. What, what does that matter in terms of to, the incarnation, yeah. the, the, the theology of it? Does that yeah. matter? To me, it matters enormously because um, if, and, and part of the problem of the way we sometimes talk about the highfalutin theology bit, the theology of the incarnation, is it makes it sound like an idea that the idea of God became the idea of human. Um, and the whole point about that phrase, that important phrase, the scandal of particularity, is that actually he, God, the idea of God didn't become just a notional human being. God was born at a particular time, in a particular place, to particular parents, and that, and that therefore, in our particular time, with our particular experiences, God is with us in that particularity. And there is, I think, something kind of really beautiful to recognise that although we're 2,000 years away, actually the particularity is what joins us together, which um, I think is just is an amazing thought. Mm -hmm. And this time of year as well, I also, I, the, my favourite gospel story for the, from the birth narratives is the moment when the angels burst on the scene um, with mm. the shepherds on the hill and they say, glory to God in the heavens and on earth peace. And um, it's one of those where um, every year, year after year, I go, that is just so amazing. Because if you know your Isaiah particularly, you know, sing along with the Messiah, um, what you get is the two great hopes that the prophets pointed to was that there would come a moment in the future when God would dramatically intervene in the world and God's glory would be revealed and the nations of the earth would come um, and recognize who God was and there would be peace on earth. So what the angels are really saying is that moment, the moment that you've been waiting for all these years has happened now. The moment's here. God has dramatically intervened in the world. And then the very next moment, you discover that actually, if you want to go and see it, you have to go and find a tiny baby, baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid, laid in a feeding trough. So there's just something kind of glorious about that, where the world has changed forever, and yet it looks exactly the same.
Isn't that one of the cha greatest challenges, though, for for Christians? I mean, Absolutely, because, <laughs> because we can we can preach that, and we will. And mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm with you. I'm with you totally on the uh, on the angels, on the on those mysterious messengers, and the kind of the shimmering the shimmering reality of their mm -hmm. song and peace on earth, etc. But you know, pe people are still suffering. We've just been talking about COVID Christmas. This Christmas is going to be really hard. Did anything change? Theologically, what changed? Would you well, say? in my in my view, then you can chip in with your view. Sure, um, sure. So, <laughs> in my view, what changed was back to what we've been talking about. God is now with us in the midst of it. So, for the first time, God, who um, was transcendent and in the heavenly realms, has actually come down to earth. And because God is down with us in the midst of it, actually the there is a transformation. So we're back to both God with us and the wibbly wobbly timey wimey stuff because you've got God is with us now in the present. But because God is with us now in the present, we can look forward to the future moment when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. So you've got that um, God now in the moment who pulls our vision forward to the moment when actually there will no longer be suffering. So recognizing deeply and profoundly the suffering that's happening now, while also recognizing that God is saying, and don't forget, there will come a moment when there will be no more suffering or crying or tears. And do you think it happens the other way around as well? Just back to our theme of time. But mm. Do you think it happens the other way around so that the future is brought into, I mean, the the, the present yes. points to the future, yes, but to, but the future, the, um, you know, the Basileia that, that Jesus constantly talked about, the kingdom of God is close to you, at hand, within you, beside you, just, just you know, tantalizingly mm. out of reach sometimes, that that is brought into the present so that we live the hope that we have as individuals. I suppose the challenge is always for preachers at Christmas, how to embody that and how to preach that and live that out in your, in your not just in your liturgy, but in, what, in, in how your community is acting in the world um, in such a way that it is permanently on tiptoe, permanently hopeful because the future is here. Do you think that do you think that it works that way around? As oh, well? absolutely. Yes. No, that, that that's kind of the perfect other side to it. And 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 we live now as though we believe that to be true. Right. So now the future has broken into the present. And so we live the future now. Mm -hmm. while also at the same time recognising that the past, the old, what Paul would call old creation, um, still hangs around. So that's why you've got that kind of meeting of suffering and hope, kind of pain and joy kind of comes together right at the heart of the Christian message. Mm. It's often quite, I think it's quite tricky, though, in a, in a, in a Christmas where people have, where it has become a little bit, what can I say, um, it's become a bit kind of narrower, I think, than the, than the real meaning of the meaning of Christmas is kind of colossal and deep. Yes. And and actually what we tend to do is live on the surface of Christmas, don't mm. we? So, I mean, and I, I suppose I am talking about tinsel and, you know, walking in the air <laughs> in every in every supermarket. Uh, you know, I, I suppose I'm living I am talking about that. We've kind of made it a bit shallow, shallow, sorry, not narrow. That was the word I was looking for. Um so it is quite a, but it's quite a ask to invite people, and people do come mm -hmm. to church in a way that they don't at other times of the year. There's a, 
back to your Doctor Who analogy, I think I sometimes think about Doctor Who, that there's a kind of portal in the universe called Christmas and that people think, well, I might just be able to go without it being, you know, too embarrassing or too difficult. Or um, So they do kind of come in somehow or join in this. But it's quite an ask for, for us who are there all year to then talk in this, in this deeper way about Christmas and to and I suppose to to acknowledge this shadow of the cross across the cradle because people don't want to hear who would want to hear that as it were that it's there's this kind of unadulterated joy um, and at, at, but at the same time to be faithful to the reality of the Christmas message that God becomes human and that God and that the 33 years end in the way that they did that to be faithful to that we can't just stay we can't just stay in a kind of shallow kind of happiness um even though that's what people are coming to church for no and um i rarely get to preach at christmas for which i'm enormously grateful <laughs> because um you know I, an I open think... invite paula open invite. <laughs> at any time what are you doing midnight christmas eve <laughs> Because I mean, the thing that kind of I always think is 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 so hard for preachers is that both Christmas and Easter, you've got these massive, complex pieces of theology. You know, they're not just ordinarily big; they are the deepest, most profound, head wrestling pieces of theology. Um, and the people you get to talk to about it um, are people who don't aren't a lot of people aren't there during the year so you've got to kind of somehow make this massive impossible piece of theology um you know you, you've got the ocean of the theology and you have the teaspoon that's appropriate to give to people and um how do you what do you scoop up in your teaspoon that says um here is some of the mysterious gloriousness of christmas but in such a way that isn't going to drive you away screaming because actually it makes no sense mm. so what do you do so, <laughs> oh, I <was> ask you. <laughs> yes, I mean, I, do you know? I, I do. I do trust. I trust people's instincts to come mm. somehow. And and as I said, you know, we're in my current context. We're very lucky because we've got this outdoor space as well. So getting out of the church is incredibly important. Um, not kind of sitting there waiting for people to come to us. But I I suppose I also feel that there are so many brilliant ways in. Um, to the story that are that are human so I mean there's obviously Jesus and there's obviously um you know the shepherds and then there's supremely perhaps there's Mary and Mary is just the most brilliant uh figure to go into Christmas through I think because she's so um well I would say misunderstood you know there's this um rather um limp uh <laughs> one uh slightly under under egged um image of mary quite often at the at the stable um and around her all stuff is happening you know there's there's animals and there's mysterious visitors from the east there's the shepherds who have hurried there um there's a crying baby and all that and mary kind of is very placid but actually the, the figure of mary she she's she's astonishing um in her entirety is this courageous um young woman who says yes to this vocation that will cost her almost everything and will, and, and just, you know, famously a sword will pierce her own 
heart. But she she courageously takes this step and simply says, let it be with me according to your word. That, that you know, that extraordinary encounter on the 25th of March, as we know, um, there's a kind of um, it's astonishing energy about Mary that I think is a way for us to invite people into the Christmas story um, because it's something very ordinary is happening at the same time something very extraordinary and you don't have to be a mother to uh, understand that but I think um, the figure of the figure of Mary as this young unmarried uh, mother um, giving birth in precarious circumstances is something that is recognized the world over not least by millions of women who've been through that but that's that's an experience that is understandable I suppose so I think Mary is um is really important in this whole uh, way of narrating the Christmas story in a way that's understandable. I don't know what you think of Mary. Oh, I, I absolutely agree. Um, I grew up um, in a very Protestant household, so therefore was always taught that um, you didn't pay attention to Mary because that's not what we as good Protestants do. Um, so I was, I was, a, I'm a late, I'm a late um, fan of Mary. I'm an adult fan, sure. and. Um, and as I got there, I, the more and more I read about her, the more amazed I am by her and actually what she shows us of what we can be as Christians. Because in a way, all Mary did, and I, that all is in inverted commas, but all she did was say yes. Um, let it be to me according to your word. Um, she didn't do anything more than that. And yet she then allowed the plan of God to unfold in her life. And in a way, it is the most beautiful gift for those of us who wrestle to be Christian in the world. You know, what can I do? Actually, what I can do is say yes to God's plan and see how it unfolds. And um, that, I think, is is beautiful and a wonderful bit of theology. Mm. Um, that, um, and we often and, talk about Jesus being God's son. And of course, and there's, you know, the, yes. the iconic uh, language of father and son, etc. But in the world, you know, when Mary is... Um, is when, when Mary meets her cousin, um, she sings this amazing song, the Magnificat, um, my soul magnifies the Lord. And in that kind of upside downness of society, it put down the mighty from their seat, exalted the humble and meek, sent the rich away empty, scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. What an amazing, what an amazing uh, ethic to live by. I always think that Jesus is as much his mother's son as he is his father's son. And that, you know, you can see as an adult, he grows up and reads that scroll from Isaiah in the synagogue, which is that. And, and I, if Mary, if that was where Mary, if, if that's the kind of um, uh, vision of the world that Mary and Jesus were both off, are both are both offering in their relative, you know, songs in scripture, then he's definitely his mother's son. And I, I love the thought of I love the thought of him. I've often wondered, you, you'll know much more about this than me, Paula, but I've often wondered where Jesus tells the story of the woman sweeping the house, you know, finding the lost coin. I, I always imagine that he's seen that happen a lot in his, in his house, as it were. So I think Mary is in his, in his mind. And uh, although that's a particularly domestic, um, domestic parable, I think she's, she's clearly got an amazing strength of character and a steeliness that is not uh, exhibited by all those artistic uh, uh, depictions of her looking a little bit limp. 
<laughs> I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> and I also, the other bit I really love about the account about Mary is where it says, and she pondered all these things in her heart. Right. Um, yeah. And I, I'd have loved to have sat next to her and gone, what are you thinking now? Um, mm. Because it's, it, it's a very kind of, um, it's a soft image, isn't it? Pondering. But um, the Greek word is, is actually a much more dynamic word. She, she wrestled, she chewed on them. Um, so it wasn't just kind of a, as, a, as you say, kind of a slightly bland, um, staring off into the distance, thinking a holy thought. <laughs> not <laughs> you could the, feel not like a... the talk. All that art is fantastic, of course. You know, yeah, I mean, no, absolutely. absolutely. We all but love actually, it. Yeah. We've absolutely got it implanted that, that she's very passive. And I, I've just never seen, never seen that story in that way. And I think that's yeah. a really good you know, role model, for want of a better word, to offer to people as we, as we kind of approach Christmas. Yeah, that's right. And that kind of that just that great image that she's going, what on earth does all this mean? And she goes back and she kind of, she stores it all up and then she gets it out and has a look and tries to work out what it means. Mm. And, um, you know, I often um, imagine Mary through her life kind of getting it out again, you know, almost on a yearly basis going, can I make sense of it yet? And um, and for me, kind of that most poignant moment is on the cross when in John's gospel, she's standing at the foot of the cross. Um, and it's almost as though um, at that moment, she suddenly understands what it all means. There's mm. just that, and that, that, that yes. Um, you know, they're kind of, I, I, I wonder whether, you know, with the birth she went, ah, now that's the yes fulfilled. Or, you know, when Jesus then went off, when, when he was lost in the temple, was that when she said, mm, um, that, that was what I said yes to her when he, be, he went off and started teaching and she was anxious about him going. Um, and you can almost feel it kind of over and over again. She's saying, when I said yes, what did it mean? Mm. And then at the foot of the cross, mm. she re mm. then realises exactly what it means. And we do have that sense in celebrating Christmas liturgically, don't we? We do have that sense that that's what's coming. And I think there's a kind of whole life, there's a whole life mm. lived there in that moment of uh, of the of the birth and the infancy narratives i mean you know i i also think it's uh, I, I never i maybe maybe uh, I, I think we whenever i'm preaching about this we're leading services about it and and there's a kind of anxiety from some people about what happened and what was literal and did it when did it happen and it's probably about 4 bc or 6 bc depending on you know which um historians you read and it certainly wasn't year zero and and who were the magi, etc. There's something about the. I, I I just trust. I suppose I'm saying I I trust people's instincts to come to church, but I also trust the, the way that we as human beings can hear the truth, in in different layers of stories, so that so that that kind of revolutionary spirit of the Magnificat and all the challenges we're dealing with today, with climate change, with racial justice with uh, the gap between rich and poor, with, you know, the post-COVID um, challenges this Christmas, you know, that, that message of, uh, of a world that is dramatically different from the one we have now and that it can start now is, is an amazingly hopeful one um, and seems to me to be, you know, more, well, more relevant, more relevant than than ever and it's not a it's not a kind of narnia type fairy story that's a long way away it's a it's a it's a truth told in imaginative ways but it's absolutely about how we live how we live today and what choices we make tomorrow 
Absolutely. Um, people often ask me as a New Testament scholar, what's your favourite birth narrative? Mm. And um, um, I, well, I, sometimes um, I go one way, sometimes I go another way. But I often like to go say, actually, John 1's my favourite birth narrative. <laughs> right. Because in that, it encapsulates what both Luke and Mar Matthew are trying to do. Um, and that, that the line, which is for me, um, the one around the birth narrative, you know, is the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot. And then you get into the discussion about precisely what the Greek says. So it can either be the dark and the darkness could not um, overcome it or the darkness could not comprehend it. And there's different arguments about it. But I kind of love that idea of the light shining in the darkness and the darkness not understanding what's going on. Um, and therefore not able to overcome it. There's just something kind of really, really beautiful about that as an image. Mm. And for me, that's the birth narratives, mm. the light mm. shining, ever shining, and the darkness really not getting what's going on. Mm. Mm. And and big, and maybe, I mean, there's that older, is it, was it an Amnesty International quote? I can't remember. It's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. So that yeah. to, to be able to, be able to find the ways that we as a community can shine is is really important isn't it because it it then and as individuals because then that in itself addresses the the lie that um that you know and we have to be a bit careful about um we have to be about a bit careful about those analogies don't we about light and darkness but that the but that the um the, the ways in which we are separated from God, if I can put it like that, can't in the end win. They look as if they're winning and temporarily they win. And, you know, sometimes they win for a whole lifetime. But in the end, in, in the kind of cosmic reality of Kairos, God's time, that separation cannot be uh, resisted. Uh, or cannot resist, sorry, that separation cannot resist the connection that happens between God and humanity in the incarnation, that that's, it's delicate, but it's utterly irresistible. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Mm -hmm. um, we're coming towards the end of our conversation. So let's just um, ask ourselves an impossible question. Um, and I'll ask you first and then I'll um, come later. What's yeah. your favourite carol? Oh, my word. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, it's got to be, um, it came upon the midnight clear. It's got to be that because of the angels. I hope I haven't haven't stolen your favourite caravan. Yeah, you have. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay, but it, it, it's definitely got to yeah. be that because partly because of the, the quotation that I used earlier about mm. um, the warring, warring humanity and the song of the angels being about peace, which I think is really, is really beautiful. But it it's um, I think probably combination it's a combination of that recognition of the reality of the suffering of the world and the glory, which is you know, just again, just very close to us or just out of reach. And I do I do quite like the melody as well. I think some some Christmas carol melodies are a little bit dull, um, if I'm honest. Um, and and I've always quite liked the sense that some of them are very um uh close to what would be sung in a tavern you know it's it's the it's the moment where a church the church and the tavern kind of come together um i can't quite say that about it came upon the midnight clear uh tune but it's got it's got some movement in it mm -hmm. and it's got some it's got some pathos in it it's got some really quite crunchy cadences towards the end so i i uh, i i find it really moving every year i suppose and i, I mean i 
as many people. I've just been singing it my whole life. Well, since you've chosen, too, <laughs> you've nicked my favourite one. I'm, I'll, I'll come in with an additional, which is not quite a carol, but um, I, I just love it, is Warlock Bethlehem Down. Mm. Um, I think, I mean, it, it's not a carol in that we don't sing it as a congregation, when choirs sing it, but the theology in it is utterly beautiful. And then the tune that goes with it um, somehow kind of supports the theology. You know, when he is king, he will wear grave clothes. Um, those kinds of images um, are just stunning. Mm-hmm. So what are you looking forward to this Christmas, Lucy? I, I think I, I really love the Midnight Mass. I really love being being with with people at a very unusual time of unusual time of the day, um, and there's a there's a real there's a real extra, there's an extraordinary privilege speaking as a priest. There's an extraordinary privilege of celebrating Eucharist in the middle of the night with with a group of people, and uh, and for that to be the kind of moment of incarnation, as it were. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. And I think in broader terms, I'm just really looking forward to, you know, not having to deal with all the restrictions and the difficulties of the past two two years or so, which has made these kinds of joyful celebrations really tricky. And we've been utterly persistent and, you know, dogged in our in our celebration of them. But um, but I'm hoping not to need so much doggedness and persistence this year, I guess. How, how about you? Oh, it's hard to hard to choose, really. But. I think this is this is a new thing that I've learned since I arrived at St Paul's, and you will know it really well. Um, is that, and it's going to sound a really strange thing to say, but the tiredness that comes as you get closer and closer to Christmas, and then the beautiful moment when you proclaim John one, um, and I particularly like um, it in the carol services that you get as you get closest to Christmas, um, where you have. Um, there's a, a lovely piece of music by John Taverner, God is with us. And then um, John 1 is read, read immediately afterwards. And um, I, I have tingles down my spine every single time. And I'm almost built myself up to um, an apoplectic state of excitement in the anticipation <laughs> of it this year. There is just something lovely about the moment when in the midst of you being really tired because you've been doing this for such a long time you simply hear you know in the beginning um and they're just it's just it's glorious and beautiful so i'm looking forward to that with great anticipation <laughs> um, i'm also looking forward um actually just to have the family for christmas you know mm. and have a proper christmas um mm. even if we don't um have as much food as usual or you know go go full blowout actually just simply being all together for christmas is going to be mm. great Wonderful. It's been great talking to you, Lucy. Um, really fun. It's a great and, pleasure. Uh, thank great you so pleasure. much. Yeah. Have a wonderful Christmas. And you too. <laughs>